is alive and powerful. So yeah. we thank you that you're here. We thank you that you're with us and that you're working and speaking. So Jesus, we want to meet with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Drew. I always feel like Drew's enthusiasm just gets me pumped up to teach, you know? Like, man, he's excited. Like, I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I'm going to do three things this morning in a short period of time. Uh, because of our current uh, environment, you know, out of the high school here in this building, we've had to shorten our services. And I know that you've all been grieving the shortened sermons that I've been preaching. And I'm with you. I, am, I, I have been shedding tears over that as well. Right? Yeah, thanks. But this morning I'm going to do three things, and we're going to move fairly quickly. I'm going to share with you the basic gospel message, because it's Easter. And then I'm going to share with you what I believe is a cultural uh, fallacy, a, a lie, a misunderstanding of the gospel that is prevalent today. That's number two. And then the third thing I'm going to do is I'm going to take the gospel message, and I'm going to plop it um, in our current sort of, uh, I don't even know what to call it anymore that we're living in right now, but things have been different, right? Um, and so I want to take the gospel and speak to a current contemporary issue that uh, many of you are facing. And I want to do that for two reasons. Number one, I want to speak to that issue. But secondly, I want you to see how the gospel speaks to where we're at right now. It always does. So that's what we're going to do. You ready? The gospel always begins, always, always begins with the goodness of God. God in his goodness created everything that was created. There was no contest. There was no conflict. There was no war going on in the heavens. The God of the universe said it, spoke it, and it was. It became. It existed. He created the universe and the world and, and, and covered the world uh, with everything that's on it. And he got all done, and he looked at it, and he said, this is really nice. This is really good. I like the way this turned out. And then he created Adam and Eve, and he placed them there in the garden. He said, I made this for you. I'm giving it to you as a gift for you to enjoy. In fact, I've invested in you this crazy capacity. You can make more of you. You should try it. And when you make more of you, you should spread out and see more of my good creation that I have given to you. There was, there, was, there was nothing bad. There was nothing wrong. There was no evil. There was no sin. There was no brokenness. There was no shame. It was perfect. And then God in his wisdom, sometimes a wisdom that we struggle to understand, he said, here's the deal. I won't force my goodness upon you as the only option. I'm going to offer you a second option. There's a tree planted in the garden, and when you eat of that tree, this is what's going to happen. You're going to add to your knowledge of my goodness the knowledge of evil. In fact, that's what it's called. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Evil is the exit ramp to all of my goodness, everything good that I've made available to you. You can say no to that. However, an important caveat. 
I have already decided what I'm going to ultimately do with evil. I'm going to get rid of it. In fact, he says, I'm going to kill it. So if you decide to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you need to understand that the end of evil is death. In fact, as believers, we understand that death is God's grace because it is the means by which evil will be, catch this, forever eliminated. Not only evil, but all of its effects upon us and our memory of it. There's some evil things you would like to, like, God says, I'm going to get rid of all of it through death. That's all in the first three chapters. And then we have the first section of your Bible. We have what we probably in your Bible says the Old Testament, which is actually uh, an old agreement or an old uh, uh, set of promises. And it was essentially this. I can boil it down very simply. God says, I will give you everything that you want. I will give you a place to live. I will give you guaranteed protection in that place that you live. And I will, will, in, in, in ridiculous, beyond comprehension ways, I will provide you with abundance. You'll have a place to live where it's secure, and you'll be fabulously wealthy. The terms of this agreement are that you need to return to my good ways. And I will tell you what those good ways are. And he gave them the law. He said, these are my good ways. You know good and evil. Live according to my good character, consistent with my good purposes. Live that way, and I will give you everything. And guess what? They said... Yes, and could not pull it off for a thousand years. Couldn't pull it off. In fact, the whole Old Testament is essentially evidence number one in the case against man that no matter the incentives, we can't get it done. We can't do it. Romans 3.20, therefore, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. All the law did was make us aware of how far short we had fallen from God's goodness. You guys remember that moment when when it occurred to you that I've worked really, really hard and my best effort has been insufficient? I don't even have a good excuse. I have, like, decent parents, right? I can't even blame them. And yet I find myself incapable of choosing God's goodness consistently. And that's the human experience. Psalms 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's anyone who understands, anyone who seeks God and discovers that all have turned away. That is the situation into which heaven sends a hero. A man who would come from heaven, the Son of God, who would set aside his divine privileges, come down as a man, 
And as a man, a perfect, sinless man, he would take uh, upon himself within his physical body the guilt of all of our evil, all of our disobedience, all of our failure, all of our shortcomings, and he would die as the guilty one. Second Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He became sin, and sin was put to death in his body. First Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. is where we're at in our celebration of Easter. He came, took it upon himself, and went to the cross. And how do I gain access to the benefits that he secured through his obedience? There's only one way, and that is faith, to say yes to him. Faith is when I say, God, I have come to the end of my ability. I recognize how far short I fall, how deficient I really am. I could not come up with new strategies that would solve that. If there is a solution, if there is, if I'm ever going to walk in the goodness that you designed from the beginning, you're going to have to do something because I'm hopeless. And he says, I've done it, and it's available by faith, by simply trusting, believing, and accepting. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This isn't something that you did on yourself, by yourselves. It is a gift from God. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. That's good news, right? Good news? Yeah. And here's the cultural error. Many have mistakenly accepted this as the end, the full circle of the gospel. God has forgiven me. He paid the penalty. It's all good, and I can get on with my life. But this is the beginning of the gospel. What I shared with you just now is simply the entry point to the good news of God's love. The good news is that we've been invited into relationship with him. That's what I've been qualified for. And forgiveness is merely the doorway into that relationship with him. And relationship with God is unlike any relationship that you have ever known. Because relationship with God is based on spiritual union. God has made for himself temples, his people. And through the forgiveness extended by the cross, through his work on the cross, he has made a most holy place for his spirit to dwell and has given the gift of his spirit to us to live in us 
so that I and Christ are one. And this means something. It means that, that the reward of his righteousness is my reward, just like the penalty for my sin became his penalty. He suffered because of what I deserved, and I am blessed because of what he deserved. He took my punishment, and I received his righteousness. This is what the, the church fathers referred to as the mystical union. Mystical union meaning we, we're wrestling to understand what it even means. Listen to Paul in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, if you know anything about Paul, you know enough to know that that's not true. He didn't even know Jesus when Jesus was crucified. Then he found out about Jesus and went to work killing his followers. But listen to what Paul says. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ, Jesus himself, the spirit of Jesus lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith that I have been unified with God by faith and he dwells in me. That is the basis, not only of relationship with God, but of being transformed into the image of God. Ephesians 3, listen to Paul again. I pray that out of his glorious riches, because apparently God is very rich, out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power. How? Through his spirit in your inner being, a strength that comes from within you and leads to a transformed life so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, you may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And here it is that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. That's actually what Jesus is after. Through his spirit in you, supplying you every resource that you need, that you would be transformed back into God's good image, consistent with God's good character and God's good purposes. And how does that happen? Christ in me. They mentioned on Tuesday night at 6.30 here in this building, I'm teaching a class on the gospel. If you want to know more, come. I have one thing left to do. I want to take a component of the gospel and look at our current situation. I realized about a month ago but I was having a, basically the same conversation over and over. I began to piece some things together in my own mind, and then it occurred to me, hey, the gospel speaks to this shared experience. And here's the conversation I've had over and over. Some of you will relate to this. In the midst of being more isolated than I've ever been, in the midst of having much of my life thrown into the spin cycle, 
Many of God's people right now are struggling with feelings of abandonment. And this is what I mean by that. As everything has become more difficult, the people that I lean on have become less available. I have relationships that I draw strength from, but their lives are in upheaval too, and now they're less available to me. I need more support, and I'm getting less support. I need more encouragement, and I'm having to survive with less encouragement. And the conversation that I've had on repeat is this, this seed that is planted in our hearts, and it is this. I feel like I've been abandoned by those who were supposed to care for me. Some of you feel that way towards your church and your pastors even. Let me take a piece of the gospel and land it at that place. Hebrews 13, 12. Jesus also, so that he could sanctify the people through his own blood, in other words, make them holy, make them back into his image, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, because we don't have a city here we're seeking a city which is to come. This is not our home here. We have a home to come. And we look at the story of Jesus. You know, he, he takes our sin, he takes the cross, and goes out of town. He's cast out. He's out of the city. He's out of the gates. He's up on the hillside. And we say, yeah, we understand that was, that was awful, what the Romans and the Jewish leaders did. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand. In my, in my crucial hour... When I, was, when I was more in need of support, encouragement, prayers, all of it, my close friend group was obliterated, shattered. And I was left completely alone. Void of those resources. Paul understood this dynamic so well. He says, it's for this reason that I'm content when I feel weak, when I'm insulted, when I'm distressed, when I'm persecuted. It's just general difficulties for Christ's sake, for this is what I have discovered, is that in my moment of weakness, when I feel like I'm at the end of my capacity to make do with the resources and relationships that I've been given right now, at the end of that, I find that Jesus is there with me. And to the degree that Jesus is there in that moment, that's my strength. That's everything. Paul says, without trying to paint a rosy picture, without trying to reframe it, 
as something good, let me tell you, I've seen it all. I've been abandoned. I've been isolated. I've been without. And yet I know this to be true. Jesus has met me there again and again. In fact, it's so real. I've discovered over time those were the moments where I find my true strength in fellowship with him. And so wherever you're at right now personally, to whatever degree you feel the need for more support, more encouragement, more investment, and are receiving less of it, I would encourage you this way. Jesus knows. Meet him there. And he will encounter his strength, his presence, and his grace. And God, what blows me away about the story of the cross outside of the city is that in that, in that time and place where, where your support network was, was ripped apart, where your friends were unavailable, you never lost sight of continuing one foot in front of the other, loving us, caring for us and serving our ultimate need. And so we want to do the same, but we lack the capacity apart from your spirit in us. We want to, in those moments, not only to find fellowship with you at our place of desperation, but to find a renewed sense of purpose in loving others who are broken and hurting and alone. So we ask that you would give us supernaturally that capacity even now. You've been so good, and I'm thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand and take some time?